How can you launch a company in dozens of languages across many countries on few resources? Welcome to Venture Voice. This is Greg Gallant, and today I have Fabrice Grinda on my show. He was actually first on Venture Voice during his last day at his、uh, last company called Zingy back in December 2005. He'd sold that company for $80 million, had a great exit, spent a little more time working there, and was anxious to go and do his next thing. At the time, he apparently had the idea for his current company, but admits on our show today that he wasn't willing to tell anybody else. So that's why you didn't hear it in the last episode. He since launched his new company, OLX. It's very ambitious. It basically takes on Craigslist, does the same thing Craigslist does. It's an international、uh, classified service, but unlike Craigslist, they make a big effort to translate into other languages. To add lots of new features, and they don't charge for anything, they're totally ad supported. So he's now grown that company to a good size. So I'll share a lot of those metrics with us. He's raised over $26 million, and now you can hear how he's trying to one up his last venture. Enjoy. I'd like to thank our new partner, FreshBooks, for sponsoring this episode. FreshBooks is an easy to use online invoicing service that saves you time, gets you paid faster, and makes you look Fortune 500 professional. To learn more, sign up. Go to FreshBooks.com and for a limited time, enter the code VENTURE to save $20 on your paid subscription. Or go click their link from our website. I use FreshBooks to invoice sponsors, and it leaves me with more time to make this show for you. Fabrice, welcome back to Venture Voice. Thank you.、So、it's good to have you back. Last time we had you on, we were walked into your office at Zingy, December 2005. I guess that's a little over、uh, three years from now. All your boxes, me, all your、um, items were packed up in boxes. I found out it was your last day. I think you were, I came in the evening so, or the afternoon, so it was just hours before you were leaving for good. So I imagine a lot has happened to you since then. A lot has happened. So tell me,、um, let, let's kind of recap your career.、Uh, give me the, you know, the one minute, you know, the Twitter size story for,、uh, for how you got to that point where you'd sold your company. Sure. So the, I guess my background is as follows.、Uh, I was born in Paris.、Um, I grew up、uh, in Nice in the southern part of France and came to the US for college. I went to Princeton. Then I worked for McKinsey and Company in New York in,、um, in FIG. And then in 1998, you know, right time, right place, right skills, decided to do something in the internet. Not having any、uh, brilliant new ideas to bring to the world, I decided to copy American ideas and take them to the rest of the world. So I came up with、uh, nine business selection criteria, evaluated all the US ideas, and chose eBay. So in 1998, I sold my apartment, I left McKinsey, I moved back to France and created a copy of eBay. For Europe, for Southern Europe, and、uh, developed that for a few years and went through the ups and downs of,、uh, of the bubble days and、uh, shared that story in detail in the last interview. And、um, late 2000, I sold that company, started looking for what to do next, and realized that mobile media and mobile content was huge in Europe and Asia, and the US market is up for grabs. So I moved back to the US in、uh, July of 2001, created Zingy with the aspiration or the goal of building a large ringtone, wallpaper, cell phone game. Company. So basically, selling mobile content to the US market. 
Um, given that it was 2001, you can imagine the difficulties I went through trying to raise money. I mean, going to VCs and telling them I'm doing B2C telecom, which at that point were the two most hated words in the industry. Ended up investing pretty much everything I had in that company and, you know, really struggling for the first few years, but uh, ultimately became a huge success. I mean, sales of the company went from $1 million in 2002 to $5 million in 2003 to $50 million in 2004 to $200 million in 2005. So it was a wild ride and lots of fun. I sold the company in May, May 31st of 2004. Uh, for $80 million in cash to a Japanese publicly traded company in the same space. And because there was so much growth and it was a lot of fun, I basically stayed on for another 18 months. And then on uh, November 30th of 2005, I thought my time there had run its course. I wasn't very happy with the shareholders and decisions they were making. So I decided to move on to greener and greater pastures. And so you, you interviewed me on December 1st, basically the day I decided you know, to leave and uh, to go and do the next thing. So tell me about that experience. You know, I guess it's kind of lucky when entrepreneurs get a chance to sell at a great price. And I guess that was your first exit where it was like an exit that was a clear home run for you. The, I had other exits in the past, but uh, none of them actually ultimately led to me making much money for various reasons, you know, from the acquirer's stock collapsing to other reasons. Uh, and, and I also got lucky that a lot of the investments I'd made in 98, 99, I mean, there were small investments, which basically I thought were all dead, you know, by 2001, if you'd asked me to put a value in like these seven companies I invested in. In 2004, 2005, almost all of them exited successfully. Like one went public, you know, five were sold with like five to 20x multiples mm -hmm. and just one went under. So now it felt great to all of a sudden, you know, have come from like near bankruptcy, you know, missing payroll, missing rent payments to actually being extremely well off and to the point that, you know, I didn't have to worry about making money for the rest of my life. So tell me, like, what was that like, though? You know, it's this trade-off that a lot of successful entrepreneurs struggle with is that they have this company, they love it like you did with Zingy, they sell it. So on one hand, you know, they don't have to worry about being bankrupt. On the other hand, you had these troubles with your shareholders. So it's like you're going from being a broke master of your own world to uh to being you know a well-funded employee the i mean it was the, the transition was you know was it was not too difficult at first because they let me do whatever i wanted to but as they decided you know they wanted to go take the company in another direction not let me invest in the product and you know take all the cash back to japan you know that's when the tensions started arising and ultimately realized you know it's not worth my time Zingy was easier to sell, though, than the prior company because Zingy, even though I loved, you know, what we'd accomplished with it and I loved working there, I wasn't madly in love with the idea. I mean, Zingy violated one of my famous nine business selection criteria, um, which is, you know, never be in a business where there's risk of margin compression or disintermediation by suppliers and or customers. And in Zingy, you know, the, the, the because the care the customers you know which were the, the, the cell phone carriers are highly concentrated you know the top four account for ninety percent of your revenues and the media companies are also highly concentrated with the like top four or five accounting for most of your costs it, it creates huge risks of margin compression and disintermediation which is ultimately why first I sold the company you know and B why I never felt it was a platform where I was going to build a multi billion dollar company from and so I was mm -hmm. actually rather happy to sell it knowing that risk existed and in fact. A few years later, you know, it actually happened or came true in the fact that these, you know, carriers and, and, and media companies started compressing the margins and, and driving the economics away from that business. Hmm. 
So having sold the company, did you, you know, it wasn't your first company sale, but I guess everyone's different. Did you learn anything from that? Like, do, do you look back and say, hey, you know, I could have found a different acquirer, or change the terms, and maybe had a better fate? Or, or do yeah. you just think, hey, you had a home run, you know, couldn't have foreseen what happened? Well, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. When uh, I sold Zingy in uh, May 31st of 04, uh, the, the only numbers we had were Q1 of 04. So Q1 of 04, we had like 4 million in revenues, a million in profits. And if you'd asked me my expectations for revenues um, for 04 and 05, I would have told you, you know, I don't know, 20 million in 04, 40 million in 05. Uh, and ultimately, it ended up being 50 and 200. So mm. we ended up growing much faster than I expected. Uh, we even got a, when I, we even got a buyout offer later when I was working for the Japanese you know, for over 100 or 200 million. So I could have sold the company for a lot more had I waited a year. But of course, had I waited two years or three years, given that the economics of the business changed, I would have been able to sell it for a lot less. So absolutely no regrets. You know, I, I don't know if it was Rothschild or Rockefeller, one of those who said, you know, you, the way they made money is by always selling too early. And I'd rather sell <laughs> too early than too late. And in this case, I'm, I'm very happy with a transaction that I made. And so n no real regrets. Now, would have I... No, had I known the, what the sellers, the buyers were like, I would probably have sold to another company because there was a better house for Zingy than you know a Japanese company, supposedly in the same space, but really with no real synergies with what's going on mm -hmm. in Japan. And so a media company, you know, an MTV or or a, a Fox, you know, interactive, uh, would have been a much you know much better house for Zingy mm -hmm. than you know, than a Japanese company which didn't understand anything, where the guys didn't speak any English, and where you know, there were really no synergies between what they were doing and what we were doing. So why did you do it with them? The, they were the highest bidder, and the, they were the most motivated to do the deal and it was the easiest to do deal with them. But at the same time, we had private equity companies, you know, making us offers to, take, to just invest in the company at the same valuation. We had slightly lowered valu valuation offers from a few others. And, uh, you know, and the, 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 the reason, the story they sold, which was, look, we know what the future of this business is like because we're in a market which is just two years ahead of yours. And so what's happening in Japan and Korea, which we know will, you know, we will help you guide you through those changes, um, you know, was compelling as a story. The reality, though, is the U.S. market ended up developing in a very different way because the carriers in the U.S. decided that, you know, do be doing the Japanese approach of having an open uh, open walls uh, where they only do billing and they take a 9% commission was not the way they wanted to go. They'd rather have much more control. And so in, in the U.S., we ended up with walled gardens where, you know, the care is taking 50% of the revenues. And so all the learnings from Japan and all the business models and the products that you could launch in a market where the carriers were only taking 9% letting you launch whatever you wanted is very different from what the carriers mm. in the U.S. would let you do where they would take 50% and not let you launch whatever you wanted. And so to recap how a how the deal went off. I think it was sold for 80 million and you had roughly half the company at exit. Yeah, pretty much a bit more than that. And it was, it was sold over time. Uh, there were, or it was paid over time at about a half, a bit more than half at, at closing. And then there was an earn at, which obviously mm -hmm. we blew out of the water. I mean, we, we hit all the targets and so we got paid over the next two years or so. They say earnouts are often kind of hard to enforce and often don't end well. How, how'd it go for you? Um, didn't go extreme. Well, 
the good news is we we did have the targets were very explicit in terms of what we needed to hit it was on the, both the revenue and the profitability side, and we hit all the targets. So it was clear that they had to pay us, of course, because they had ran into financial difficulties in Japan. They they balked at making the I guess the third payment. They made the second. Um, so we got into fight over that, went to arbitration, and basically settled, and they essentially paid. So it was more complicated than I would have liked because we, we did end up having to fight a little bit and, uh, out of court, but uh, ultimately you know, got resolved satisfactorily. So I guess when I saw you December 1st, 2005, I would say, like a, I guess, kind of a bittersweet thing that you're leaving not – on good terms, but it sounds like it was much sweeter than bitter. Oh, that. I was very happy. I mean, yeah. uh, the company had done fantastically well. I, I was proud of, the, of what I had built. I would sold it extremely well. You know, the fact that I didn't like the guys who sold, who bought it, you know, ultimately didn't matter. And as now, you know, I now had the freedom and independence to do whatever I wanted for the rest of my mm -hmm. life. So, so well, let's just talk about what you did December 2nd, 2005. What did you do the day after you finished at Zingy? So the reality is I'd actually already knew what I wanted to do next. I, 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 there's an, an so, idea. So you withhold information from my <laughs> listeners. Well, you know, I didn't want to you know, play my hand too early because uh, in, in the internet, it's really easy to create a startup. I mean, these days, with like $20,000, $30,000, you, know, you, you can get almost any site built and launched and you know, see what happens. So mm. I wanted to make sure that I had the, the groundwork laid for the next company that I was launching. So basically, um, went, um, I flew to Argentina. Um, I went, I, I, I basically, actually, December 2nd, I think I flew to France, I wanted to meet a whole bunch of my French entrepreneur friends. Basically, went all around the world, meeting a whole bunch of entrepreneurs, mm. talking to them, you know, went on vacation, went skiing, et cetera. But most of it, you know, I spent uh, about a month and a half in Argentina, um, partly on vacation, you know, ice climbing in Patagonia and hiking in northern Patagonia and exploring Buenos Aires, but really trying to convince uh, a team of friends there to, to join me for the new startup. And these teams of friends were all the, the founding members and the, the top employees at a site called Deremate.com, which was an eBay of Latin America. Uh, Deremate was actually an offshoot of my eBay of Europe, which was called Auckland. So in uh, 1998, when I built my eBay of Europe, you know, everything was great. And a year later, a friend of mine from McKinsey said, hey, you need to meet these guys from Latin America. They're all really smart, HBS, BCG, et cetera. And they want to do something on the internet. So in June 99, I met them in New York, and they were telling me you know, what they wanted to do, that they were trying to do something on the internet. And I said, guys, you know, a year ago, I went through this very exercise, and I decided that the conclusion was you need to do auctions. And you know, so what you, what you need to do is do auctions. Here's a business plan. Here's a technology. So basically, they took the Auckland business plan and technology, adapted it for Latin America, and boom, Deremate was born. And, um, and the CEO of that company and founder called uh, Alec Oxenford became a close friend. You know, obviously worked closely over the years. Um, both for Deremate and another company that he created that I, that I invested in called Dinero Mail, which is a PayPal of Latin America. And um, as luck would have it, in uh, late 2005, Deremate was bought by its major competitor called Mercado Libre, which is the eBay of, of Latin America. In fact, eBay owns 20% of it. And that company is now public on NASDAQ and worth about a billion, uh, down from like two or three billion um, in a few, after its IPO a year or two ago. And so the entire Deremate team, which are people I loved and I'd worked with before and trusted and who knew auctions, and the reality is the difference between auctions and what I'm doing today is actually rather close. I'm about to describe that in a minute. And so I went there to convince them that they should join me in building you know, my new company, which is OLX. Hmm. 
So what's that conversation like? So you, so you went down to Argentina. So I went down to Argentina and I said, look, um, I, I, as I've done in the past, you know, when I start thinking of what to do next with my life, I go through my nine business selection criteria and I've evaluated all the different uh, ideas and I'm looking at the various trends in the world. And I'm like, I've come to the conclusion that what we need to do is free classifies for the world. We need to take Craigslist, we need to improve it, and we need to deploy it globally. And the way I reached that conclusion was, you know, I, I love Craigslist. I mean, it's a great site, but I felt it was not progressing over the years. The product is still basically stagnated, and arguably they were even violating some of the precepts of being a public service to the community, both by starting to charge in some categories like real estate or jobs, and by really not improving the site against scam, et cetera. And, you know, simultaneously, obviously, eBay was alienating its community of sellers by increasing the prices and changing the rules on them. So I felt, you know, we could do a better job. And looking at the market dynamics and trends, and there are five big trends in the world. You know, there's a transition from offline media consumption to online media consumption. There's a transition from offline advertising to offline advertising. There's a transition from paid business models to free online ad-supported business models. There is a transition, well, there's emerging market growth with both GDP per capita and online media consumption growing faster in the developing world than the developed world. And number five, there's a big transition going on in the classifies business. The classifies business is a $100 billion a year business online and offline, which historically has been dominated by the newspapers. But, you know, and if you look in the U.S. and in the Western world, you already see a transition first to paid vertical sites like Hot Jobs or Monster, and then a free classified size like Craigslist. And that transition is largely underway already in, uh, in the developed countries, you know, in Western Europe and the U.S. But if you look in Eastern Europe or Latin America and Southeast Asia and most of the rest of the world, newspapers still dominate the space. They charge an arm and a leg. And, and, and therefore, there are no real online offerings. They're all fragmented. And so if you're trying to, you know, find a roommate or, or uh, find a nanny or find something that you're not really willing to pay $100 a newspaper for, you, you, are, you, you are out of luck. And so I felt... You know, let's build Craigslist 2.0 for the world. And so I went there, you know, gave them my story of why, what we wanted, what I wanted to build, which was, you know, next generation classifies for the world. Told them why they were ideally suited for it, because auctions and classifieds are very similar. And arguably, you know, classifieds is actually an easier business than auctions because you, you don't actually handle the transaction and the payments and the payment part of it. And so, um, you know, convinced them this was a huge business and we're going to you know we're going to have lots of fun building it it's going to be a brand new adventure and we never really work together we're going to really truly be able to work together you know by me piloting the company you know from new york with uh, running products and MA and and investor relations and business development and, and then you know in Buddhist Aires doing all the implementation of the product all the technology all the QA customer service mm -hmm. etc so Took me a month and a half to get really get them excited because they'd been working really hard at Deremate and they needed a little bit of a break. But little by little, we got the team in place and uh, we launched. We created the company. Not we didn't launch the site, but we incorporated the company in March nine of two thousand and six. So tell me that whole month and a half. Were you down there the whole time? Were you back up here and back down there? Like what what, what are the logistics like of you know you being the co CEO in New York and convincing a team to work for you? Uh, so far away. Well, at that time is really easy because there was we had not done anything yet. It was really convincing them to work for me, and so it was. I, I flew there, spent pretty much all of January in in Argentina uh, to convince them to, to do this. Um, then just wanted a vacation basically on in February. I took the entire month of February off, went skiing, went to see my family in France, etc. 
while Alec, who was the CEO of Data Mate and was, became the co-CEO of OLX, uh, was assembling the team, convincing the core guys to join in. And then you know, finally, all, everything came together um, in, in March, you know, March 9th of 2006. We incorporated the company. We put in the seed money. And you know, mm-hmm. we, we were off to the races. Now, in terms of how we manage it today, once we have all these people, it's different. So today, OLX is about 125 employees. Uh, we have uh, 95 in Buenos Aires. Five in New York, in 20, 25 in, in Beijing, basically. Actually, we also have one in Moscow and one in Delhi. And so the way it's managed is ILEC manages all the day-to-day operations down there, you know, from performance reviews uh, to hiring new people to, you know, getting all the little things in the office working. Um, and he also does all, you know, if we do M&A, he'll do all the, the, the post-merger integration, making sure that people work well with the team. And he's also going to do all the PR for... Portuguese and Spanish, whereas I'll do the frontline M&A, identify the companies, negotiate the prices, I'll do English PR and French PR, and then I'll do product prioritization, BD, and then in New York, my, my the rest of my team, which are actually close friends all from my prior startups, I mean, the, the head of finance who's in New York was the head of finance at, at Zingy, uh, the head of marketing was actually the country manager for France for Auckland, the auction site in Europe, and the head of mobile was also in New York. Um, was the head of mobile for Meetic, which is a big dating site in Europe, which is run uh, and owned by a friend of mine. And so basically I spend um, two weeks every three months in Buenos Aires. So I spend two months a year in Buenos Aires. I, uh, I just came back. In fact, it was 20 days uh, in Buenos Aires. And the rest of the time in New York for day, most of the time, but then I travel, you know, go a week or two a year in Beijing to see the team there. You know, I intend to go to Delhi and to meet the team there um, in, in a few weeks as well. And then uh, ultimately, and also do a lot of traveling around the world to do M&A and, and partnerships with different companies. So just I'm into like kind of the, the you know, the, te- you know, practicalities of setting something up like this, since it seems to be a trend of people getting much more international with their businesses. You know, like when you incorporated the business, where do you incorporate it? What's it like to you know have equity and bank accounts and multiple companies when the the company's at a small stage and doesn't have much infrastructure? Sure. So, so we decided to keep it simple and it's still simple today. I mean, basically, it's a Delaware C Corp. Uh, we we are shareholders in the parent company, which is the Delaware C Corp, which is OLX Inc. That company owns 100% of the Argentine subsidiary, which is purely a cost center. And that's where all, we, we basically the Argentine subsidiary, you can think of it almost as a, a development shop where that invoices a U.S. company for all of its services. And, and that's that. Even though OLX, and I haven't given you an update on how OLX is doing, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but even though OLX is in 87 countries, you know, we don't have a local presence in most of these countries. We don't have companies incorporated. We don't have employees on the ground. We don't have offices. We've decided to keep it as simple as possible and, uh, and so, because ultimately we are a startup. And, and there's a lot of power in centralization. I mean, you want everyone in the same place. So even though we're present in all these countries, really all of the work is done out of Buenos Aires and Argentina. Are there any challenges to it? Like we'll talk about financing soon, but just, you know, as you went along all the pieces between getting people to finance it, you know, vendors, were there any complications or does everyone kind of get that now? It's not, I mean, it's more complicated because I run, I define a lot of the product specs and the product vision and the priority from New York, even though the team is down there, but we, maybe we stumbled upon a way of making it work that that, that works pretty well. We do a weekly uh, product meeting where we review that 
technical priorities and, and for the company every every Wednesday we have a weekly call every Thursday with the Chinese office and we do you know and I talk to Alec whenever it's needed you know every couple of days plus every three months as I said I go down to Buenos Aires and we do quarterly review and we also do the product planning for the next quarter and so Ultimately, even though we didn't really plan it out that way, it ended up working out that we have a structure that's relatively efficient and definitely takes advantage of the lower cost structure in Argentina. So it, was, it hasn't been that complicated, actually. And then, like, so your average day when, you know, you come into the office and it's not the weekly conference call, do you do anything that, you know, really keeps you tied into uh, to Argentina or is it mostly you just up here focusing on, you know, business development and all the other things you mentioned? The average day varies dramatically, you know, based on hardly luck. I mean, because I, we're trying to buy a lot of companies, so it might be, you know, it might be identifying those companies, or we might be talking to them, or we might be trying to convince them to do a deal. We're we're seeing in the business development, but there were there's still a lot of interactions with Argentina because because I love product and doing the you know specification, defining the features, etc. The you and my you know I'm not. But I'm not the one writing the detailed specs. I just come up with the concept. There are always questions in terms of, you know, should it be this or thus? You know, what are the paths? So there are always little questions uh, on the product that need to be answered and, and lead to basically daily interaction with both the designers and some of the developers or at least the VP of product who's down there in Buenos Aires converting my vision to, mm. into the product. And so it, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, my day, like probably the day of most people who work in the Internet, is a combination of, you know, I am email and phone calls. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Yeah. And do you do you miss uh, do you miss being there with the team the whole time? Like, do you think back to Zingy and just you know like being able to kind of go to the bar where people or just kind of pop around people's offices and kind of hear what ideas are going on and feel the morale? I, I do miss it. I mean, because at Zingy, you know, we had a foosball table. We play foosball for lunch every day. You know, we'd go, we'd play poker. You know every couple of nights mm. and, and definitely has a, a collegial atmosphere that I only get when I go there, you know, for two months a year. The, do, the good news is I do get it for two months a year and, you know, maybe, you know, you know, and, and, and the reality is Alec is really good at, 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 at keeping it. And so even though I don't necessarily get it day to day, A, I feel it when I'm there and B, Alec has really been fantastic at like keeping the culture young and hip. I mean, mm. for Buenos Aires, because we have, you know, free, you know, some free food, free drinks and everything in a big open space. I mean, for Argentina, I mean, we're like one of the coolest companies around. I mean, maybe in, in San Francisco, you know, it's just every startup is like this young, hip, fun culture. But for Argentina, what Alec has done, you know, is actually rather unique. And so I, even though I'm not quite there, I, I feel it. And, and, and as I said, it still works. And, and frankly, I love being in New York. I mean, in New York, I'm in New York for mm. two reasons. A, arguably, you know, it's a better market to raise money in. You know, you raise money in the high valuation markets like the U.S. And you sell your company ultimately in the high valuation market like the U.S. But then you spend that money that you've reinvested in the low in the low cost countries like Argentina or, or India or, or, or China. So for, for a from a capital perspective, it's capital efficient. You know, B. You know, a lot of the companies you want to do partnerships with are actually in the U.S. I mean, most of the companies we run classifieds for, from Friendster, you know, to Photolog, et cetera, are either in San Fran or in New York. You know, and you know, and see ultimately, you know, from a personal preference perspective, I'd rather be in New York. I mean, New York. Mm -hmm. My family is in Nice. There's a nonstop flight from New York to Nice. It's like six hours. You know, from Argentina, it's like 16 hours with two stops. Uh, the 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 intellectual life and the energy in the air in New York is incredible. And it's also the city, you know, with the 
highest concentration of you know high hot single smart girls. You know, <laughs> who would want to be anywhere else? Uh, hard to argue with that. <laughs> so let's talk a little more just about about how the business has gone. So, so you know, when, when we caught up last, we did a little interview on the blog and. You kind of had the idea for OLX. You told it to me just now, kind of, you know, the the intellectual justification for that. So as you got started and ramped up, did things kind of play out as you foresaw, or were there surprises? So um, for, for the, the, there's only one real point in time in, in a company, or actually maybe a few, but the, the main point in time in a company that, that's strategic is really your original idea. What is it I'm going to do? And then everything after that is all tactical. And, and things never play out as you, as you think. I mean, executing on a startup, and really any startup, is really a lot of throwing it on the wall and seeing what sticks. And what we thought was going to be our key success factors and what ended up being our key success factors are fundamentally different. You know, the product features that we thought were most important, what ended up being most important, were all fundamentally different. Uh, but to give you a sense of, you know, how OLX has played out, so the company was incorporated in March um, 9th of 2006. We launched the site basically June 1 of 2006. And uh, so we've been live for, you know, three years basically. And then uh, a bit less than three years. But in, the, in these three years, we, the company grew from like five employees to 125 employees. We went from being present in one country to being present in 87 countries and 39 languages. Hmm. Um, we went from no traffic to about to over uh, 60 million unique visitors a month. We do over 400 million pages a month, and we do uh, around 2 million new ads per month. And that's net of spam, net of scam, and net of all the deletions and removals. So we have a fair amount of traction. We're now one of the largest, if not the largest, classified site you know, in Spain, in Portugal, in Mexico, in Brazil. Uh, we're well positioned in Russia, we're well positioned in Poland, You know, we're getting a little bit of traction in China and India, in the Philippines. So. Even in, in pretty key markets, we're getting pretty big. And even in the U.S., even though we're still rather small, we, we have, we've been able to attract a lot of listings and real estate and jobs, if only because Craigslist charges in those categories. And so mm. we've been able to attract you know, a lot of people who didn't want to pay. Give me an example of one of those features where you know, when you had your business plan, you're like, oh, man, this feature is brilliant, and it turned out not to be. So at the beginning, we thought we were – we were going to offer a mixture of classifies, auctions, and buy now options to sellers, um, and, and because we felt that in the for sale category, you know, we're, we're not just offering a, a classified service; we might as well offer a, a, an auction service, a la eBay. And, and there are enough dissatisfied sellers with eBay that it, it made sense. And the reality is, because if you're running an auction or you're running a buy now service, you need you know you do need a rating system. You do need a lot. You, you need more complexity. You need registration. It, it added more complexity to the site than the user that, that the users warranted. I mean, all of a sudden you had to explain why we we're doing all these things. Ultimately, removing these options and just going simply with a classified offering increased the number of postings, increased the the responses we were getting. So, you know, it, it was a case of less is more. And so um, we actually so we completely removed the auction and the buy now features on the site. And my instinct is we might actually might reintroduce them one day, but it'll, it, at that point we'll be really big and users mm -hmm. will, will be will understand our site well and will want will be sophisticated enough to want more. At the beginning, you just want to keep it simple. And so it was, you know it's about you know removing we remove at the beginning. For instance, another major feature is we were confirming the identity of everyone. If you if you Posted an item, we would make sure the the email address you put in was your email address, et cetera. And the reality is, 
because uh, you know some some emails automatically go in spam or you know people made typo etc. It, it, it's just limiting the number of items on the site dramatically. And so small changes in terms of you know what is required to register, what what you know what what features you you offer when you post made a dramatic impact in the number of listings we're able to attract. And give me a sense of how rapidly you made these changes. So you launched it, I think you said June 1st, yeah. uh, 2006. So did you start making these changes, you know, these kind of big changes to the product, like a week in, a month in, six months in? The We used to do a release every week. And so every week we tried different things. And same thing with, you know, with our monetization or advertising, for instance. I mean, we, we try, you know, we, we monetize through Google, you know, do we put the ads in two lines or one line? Do we put the the link first or the text description first? Do we? I mean, so it's nonstop iteration, and so there's basically every week we were testing different things, and and we've kept testing different things. Uh, we moved to a two week release schedule in uh, January of this year, so now we because now we have a lot more we have a lot more traffic, we have a lot more mm -hmm. to lose, so we don't want to make sure we don't screw it up. And so, um, and, and give the, the developers a little bit more time to build bigger projects. And so now every two weeks we're testing something new. And hmm. uh, sometimes it works, often it doesn't. And you know, if it doesn't, we'll stop and we'll try something else. So like, what are you testing this week? So, um, so right now we're not, well, we're testing a few things. We, what we just released this Tuesday, we released a new header for the site. So it's half the size of the, of, of the prior header. The search engine used to be uh, separated from the header, now it's been built into the header. Um, and so because it moves everything up, we think it'll it'll lead to more people clicking and viewing more items because the items because the header takes less size, they'll see more. We also just launched featured listings, which means you can sell, um, you can buy, you can promote your listing on the homepage for ten dollars a week, or or at the top of the listings between two dollars and ten dollars a week per category, depending on the category. Mm -hmm. Uh, as a means of complementing our revenues. And we just launched that this Tuesday, uh, the same day we did the header change, um, with, uh, and we launched it in the U.S., in Portugal, in Brazil, and in Mexico. And in uh, two weeks, what we're doing is we're retagging all of our advertising channels, and two weeks after that, we're going to start testing different types of advertising to see what works better or less well. And where do all these ideas come from? Are they mostly your ideas, or are they people in Argentina, or are they the rest of the team here, it's outsiders? A it's a combination. Uh, a lot of the product ideas, so things like the header, et cetera, are usually mine. But a lot of the, let's say, the marketing ideas come from both the head of marketing and the head of finance, and the, the revenue monetization mm -hmm. uh, ideas or optimization ideas. A lot of the um, traffic ideas often come from people in, in the SEO team uh, that help us with our SEO. And, uh, and frankly, a lot of ideas come from everywhere. I mean, from customer care. So our own customers are sending a lot mm -hmm. of, uh, and our customer care team send us a lot of ideas. And pretty much all the programmers, if I look very recently when I was in Argentina, the core development team, I think, sent a list of 15 ideas. And, you know, almost all of them were very good. So mm -hmm. we're, we're implementing all of them. So it's really a combination. Uh, we're, we're, we'd like, I'd like to believe that we're very open-minded and, you know, we'll mm -hmm. take ideas. And the reality is it's, Often we're not even going to, you know, even if ideas seem silly, often we'll still try it because in, in the internet, you never know, you know, you throw it yeah, in the yeah. wall and you see if it sticks. And do you, do you have like a, do you keep them on a whiteboard? Do you have a, a list on, on, like how do you actually do it logistically? Uh, okay, so logistically, all, all of our project, of our ideas and our, our projects were managed in a uh, project management uh, system called JIRA. Uh, I don't know if you know it, but it, there's another, an equivalent, which is a little track. 
But in our mm. case, we use Jira, and you know, we put the mock-up in there, we put the description, and then you know, and and everything is organized on a release schedule. So my job is to work with the head of product and technology in the on the OLX side and and the other teams and define the priorities with them. And we basically agree on what are the priorities for this release and the next release. And basically, how far out do you plan? So right now we're planned all the way out to November, hmm. but it's not an absolute plan. It's a suggested plan. But of course, if you know, if there's something we all of a sudden we have a brilliant idea and we think, oh, we need to do this. It's much better than this. We can we move things around. I mean, it's hmm. let's say 80% of it remains fixed, and then on the on the edges we move we move things back and forth. And then I'm, I'll be back in um, Buenos Aires in September, and in September we'll basically. You know, a review what everything we've done so far and our accomplishments where we're late or on time, what worked, what didn't work, and we'll plan basically until January, February, and then I'll come back in December and we'll plan until March, April, and then I'll come back in March and we'll plan until you know September, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's an ongoing cycle, but uh, we're not about to run out of ideas because the vision here is how do we take a free classified site that's horizontal, present in every category, and we make it as good as every paid vertical site. So how do we make it as good in jobs as hot jobs? How do we make it as good in cars as you know, mobile.de in Germany mm. or, and, and, or as truly in real estate you know, for sales search? And you do that for every vertical, for every category. The amount of ideas we have is, you know, and of the, the work there is to be done is rather endless. And so mm. we have ideas to keep us busy for the next two or three years. And how do you think about that conceptually? Because, I mean, you just got to think, you know, oh, man, like if there are, if there's some company out there with 50 people and they're just totally focused on real estate and here's my company and we're trying to do everything for every country, like how do we, how do we beat those guys on that vertical? Well, the multiple differences. I mean, first of all, by, by be, you could argue we have much more scale because what we do is deployed in many more countries, et cetera. So the cost for us to deploy in, in, in an extra country or, you know, is actually rather lower then in terms of um, you know a, a focus, most of these vertical sites actually have a very different business model. Most of these vertical sites charge. And so differentiation number one, I mean, we're free. And we're not just mm -hmm. free today until we get scale and then we intend to charge. No, we're free today and forever. You know, our business model is to be free in, in order to have as many people listing as possible and therefore in order to have as much inventory as possible for people who are looking for something in whatever category, in whatever category it may be. The you know and and from a you know, product focus perspective, the, the the reality is first of all the key verticals are the same in every country in the world. You know, and if you're in real estate, you know it's real estate, jobs, and vehicles in every mm -hmm. country, and so it's not that complicated. And, and what you want in cars in France is identical to what you want in cars in the U.S. I mean, you want to know the the brand, the model, the options in the car, the year, the mileage it has. In real estate, you know, you want to know the square feet. Uh, the price, the number of bedrooms, the number of bathrooms. I mean, hmm. it's really the same thing in every country. And so it, it does give a scale. It's not as though, you know, the resources are focused, you know, or, or really spread that thin. Yeah. And, and now there, you know, there are lots of case studies out there of companies that kind of have this great product that works in America. So they say, hey, let's go international. They translate everything. They launch it elsewhere and it just doesn't work and you know they find out there is a reason or not like is there any trick to it or is it really just translating it and getting the you know local top level domain name and then doing some marketing i mean for the most part i'd argue that an idea that works in the u.s is likely to work in other countries because humans are fundamentally similar i mean we humans we want to be entertained we want to communicate we want to have a semblance of meaning in our lives you know we, and so Something that works in one country usually works in another. I mean, when I created Auckland, you know, people in France were telling me, oh, you're, 
crazy. I mean, it's these Americans, mm. they're nuts. They, they, only, they trade Beanie Babies. We don't have Beanie Babies. We don't care. In the U.S. of garage sale culture, we don't. You know, Besides, we have Minitel. You know, the internet will never work here. And even if by some miracle all of these things happen, you know, uh, we'll, never, we'll never put our credit cards online. Or, or when Mark, my friend, created Metic, the Match.com of Europe, you know, people were saying, oh, it's only for losers. Maybe these guys in America, they're crazy. They'll be on a dating site. We'll never be on it. You know, of course, three years later, everyone was on it, you know. And, mm -hmm. and, and so things that work in one country typically work in another. Now, that's true of the idea as a whole. It doesn't mean the, the execution of the idea is identical. I mean, what worked well in, in eBay in the U.S., like Beanie Babies, obviously didn't work in France. In France, there's more wines. In, in the U.S., wines are illegal to trade, you know, cross-border. So, uh the category structure is different. The nomenclature is different. The you know maybe the payment systems are different, um, but by the fundamental idea is the same. So you know in, in our case in free classifieds, the good news is that most of the categories are, are rather similar. I mean there are some differences at the edges. So in India we have a matrimonial category which is big. You know obviously matrimonials don't exist in the U.S. You're not saying hey I'm looking for a husband. This is the, these are the, my specs for what I wanted the husband. This, this is who I who I am. But it's true in other countries. You know in the U.S. we have a big casual encounters category. You know we're not in the U.S. but in many Western European countries and and obviously in all the Arab world you, you can't have any type of sexuality in most countries. In most of these countries homosexuality is illegal, so you can't even offer the categories. So you know the the specific implementation you know is different. You, the category names, the categories you have are a bit different. But fundamentally, free classified side, yeah, you do need the local domain name um, because otherwise people type the .com, they end up on the U.S. site. And, and so in that, in that case, you need to be pretty smart. You know, maybe say detect from your IP that you're coming yeah. from Egypt. You know, do you, did you want to go to the U.S. side? Do you want to go to Egypt? You know, do you want to be in Arabic? Do you want to be in English? I mean, you need to be a little bit smart about the, the options you give them. And, um, and then it's doing, you know, local marketing. And but the reality is local marketing for us is Google. I mean, if you want to buy ads and are all around the world, um, I mean, you could try to go into local ad agencies, but it's a pain in the neck. I mean, you need to, you don't know who they are. You don't speak the language. You know, we just buy Google. And, and, and we don't do the buying ourselves. We use a fantastic SEM shop in France, which is uh, multilingual capabilities. They're called Kiade. And they buy in, you know, millions of keywords in all the different languages around the world. And that's what brings the original group of sellers. We also build um, you know, sales teams when we need to to approach car dealers, real estate brokers, and headhunters. And the reality is these guys, you know, if you tell them, look, we, we, we just launched with zero items, we have zero buyers, but it doesn't cost you anything. You listen to the site, mm -hmm. you know, things, good things could happen. For the most part, people are pretty open to it. They'll just put it on. I mean, why not? Why not listen to what likes? It doesn't cost you anything. And, you know, if, if you sell a car, you, you know, you, you hire the employee you're looking for, you, you sell the house you're trying to sell. You know, it's great for you. And, well, you know, I just have this one question. Like, I imagine you had to buy all the domain names, all the dot F, you know, .fr, .ly, whatever, yep. from day one so other people didn't squat them. What would that cost? Like, how do you do that? So I, it, took me a, it took us a while, because I actually wasn't the one doing this, to figure out, you know, where, which, were, which was the best way to buy all these domain names. And finally, we found one site which allows you not only to buy all the domain names, but in a lot of countries, to buy a domain name, you need a trademark. And, and so they, they sell like twofer, that you, you can buy the trademark and the domain name simultaneously. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not cheap, I mean, and, and they're much more expensive than if you bought it you know, with a local registrar, et cetera. I think it's like two, $300 a year per domain, and we have, mm -hmm. whatever, 100 domains, so you know, it's 20, 30,000 a year. But um, in our case, you know, given the scale of our ambitions, it was worth it. And that site, by the way, is called Marcario.com. So M-A-R, 
C-A-R-I-A.com. I'll and link it, to it from the site. I'm not a shareholder, but it's really fantastic. Yeah. So it's interesting that if you, if you want to just target the U.S., it's 7 bucks with GoDaddy. If you want to target the world, still $20,000, $30,000 investment, but yeah, there's I mean, things in the world, right? It depends, right? If you just want to buy you know, the German domain and the U.K. domain and the French domain, it's actually rather cheap. You can go, uh, I think, Euro- European Registrar, Registry.com. Uh, and it's whatever the price of that country is, you know, somewhere between five and thirty-five bucks, or maybe fifty a year. So it's pretty cheap. The problem is, as soon as you start going, you know, to more esoteric places, you know, uh, in, in Latin America, where you know, I think in Colombia you need to have a company registered and you need to have a, a trademark, or in Malaysia, I mean, and our ambition at the beginning was to be truly global. And the reason we chose to be truly global, by the way, is that you know. It's really hard to know why you succeed and where you succeed. I mean, look at Friendster. I mean, Friendster didn't want to be the Facebook of the Philippines. They wanted to be Facebook. It just happened they took off in the Philippines, you know, or, or Orchid in Brazil. They didn't aim for Brazil. It just happened, you know, or High Five in Peru. And so we're like, you know, we'll launch everywhere. And some places will work and we'll take off because we're lucky. And some places we won't take off for whatever reasons. I mean, maybe, maybe competitive or maybe you did something wrong. And uh, ho- hopefully, if we launch enough places, a few places will take off and we'll do well. Mm. And um, it's so far, it's been true. I mean, we launched in all these countries and we're big in, you know, 10, 15, 20. And we're very happy with, you know, the places we're big. And we happen to be maybe lucky, A, to have grown somewhere, but B, that some of these countries are also rather relevant. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually happy. Mm. We're happier and that we're big in, you know, Brazil and Mexico and Spain and Portugal, you know, rather than, you know, whatever, you know, Montserrat. <laughs> Some country you don't want to visit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, actually, we're pretty big in Pakistan. I, I don't intend to visit Pakistan, but yeah. <laughs> if it was just Pakistan and Bangladesh, you know, it would be a bit less exciting. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. But so nonetheless, that, I'm very happy we're there. I mean, yeah. there's a market need in those countries as well. So in a way, you factored getting lucky into the business plan. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you try to create your own luck. And trying to create your own luck means, you know, you make it, you, you create a great product. You push a little bit on the marketing. You know, you have a local presence. You try to do BD deals with the local partners, be they, you know, the portals or the social networks, et cetera. But, you know, you, ultimately, you know, it, 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 it takes luck. And the more sites you have open, the more lucky you can get. You know, mm-hmm. if we were – imagine we were only in the U.S. And, for, you know, and we'd spend all of our money in the U.S. You could do that and still not succeed because, you know, there are great alternatives. Craigslist is a great site. eBay is a great site. I mean, they have their issues. But, you know, are we better, good enough or better enough that people are really going to give us a chance? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. And it wasn't worth the risk. Whereas you're in 87 countries, you have 87 chances to get lucky. Mm, so it's riskier to focus and, and sometimes on the web. Sometimes. Not, I mean, not always, but in, in our case, yes. Yeah. And, and by the way, it doesn't mean we never focus. It doesn't mean we're spreading our resources in, in 87 countries. It means we try, you know, five countries for three months. See if any of these take off. If one takes off, we continue there and we dump the others. And then, and then we move on to the next five and the next five mm-hmm. and the next five. And so it's not as – ultimately, it's not as that we'll keep pushing and spending money in 87 countries. Ultimately, we'll spend money and push in 5, 10, 20. I mean, wherever we grow and get scale and we, we have traction. But, you know, it's good. You, 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 you plant the seed everywhere. You, know, you put a little bit of water everywhere. But ultimately, you see what takes off and you put the fertilizer in the places that are taking mm-hmm. off. So tell me about how you finance this business. So we, um, my partner and I put the first half million in, uh, which was our seed, our, our seed commitment, which basically got us to getting the site live and getting a little bit of traction. Mm. And um, 
you know, we, we were considering whether or not to raise VC money or whether, given that I, you know, we've been pretty successful in the past, we're going to fund it ourselves. But um, we talked to you, we wanted to see what prices we could get in the Series A. I talked to a few VCs and we got a very generous offer. I mean, uh, and we got, um, actually, I don't think I can publicly say what the valuation was, but let's say we got a, you know, a reasonably high valuation for a Series A. So I'm like, you know, and we also met really good VCs that I really got hit it off with. One is a you know personal friend whom I'd known for you know since 1996. So now I've known him you know for 13 years. And the other one is a venture capitalist whom I met in Boston randomly. You know, and we were actually we'd already selected another VC that we were probably going to work with, but I loved him so much. I'm like, you know what? I want you uh, to invest and to be on the board. And, and their names were respectively uh, Jeremy Levine from Bessemer, who's my personal friend for 13 years and Joel Cuddler from uh, General Catalyst and you know both are fantastic in, in different ways but Joel is a guy I met in Boston you know never met him before and I'm like wow this guy's really smart fun thinks big it's gonna be a pleasure to work with you know I need to work with these guys and so uh, we agreed and we raised uh, a 10 million series a round uh, in the fall of uh, 2006 uh, I mean, there were also a whole bunch of angels that co-invested and also another mm. small fund in, in, in the UK called DN Capital that invested in that round, uh, but basically co-led by General Catalyst and Bessemer. And then we used that money to do um, well, a few things. We hired a bunch of people. We sent some money marketing to, uh, to in the different countries to start testing which countries we were going to succeed in or not. And we also did a fair amount of M&A. We, we bought a, a pretty big site in Spain. Uh, actually, it wasn't that big when we bought them. It was called Mundo Anuncio, and we... Once we bought them, we changed a few things, made it much bigger. So it's mundoinnsu.com. And um, I guess that's, we did that for 18 months. And, you know, in early 08, I felt that, A, the markets were likely to turn and having more cash was better than not having the cash. And we'd already gotten a fair amount of traction. So I decided to raise a, a, an additional round. We raised another $18.5 million, uh, both from uh, the original investors and, and, and a few other VCs. Oh, yeah. And, and, and the original investors were also the founders funds. Um, hmm. which is, um, you know, I guess Ken Harry, Sean Parker, Peter Thiel, et cetera. All the and, former Facebook guys. Yeah, the Facebook, I mean. Oh, sorry, exactly. the PayPal guys. The former PayPal guys, exactly, uh, who are investors in Facebook and yeah. LinkedIn and many other companies. And so um, did a Series B of $18.5 million in uh, the spring of uh, 08. And again, we've used that money for hmm. M&A, more marketing growth, et cetera. And we still have most of that in the bank, and yeah, things are going pretty well. And how I think it was Zingy. Did you did you have a board with Zingy? I know it was just some angel money that you had there, or not really? Was this you? I don't remember if we had a board. I'm, one of my friends uh, from my McKinsey days, one of my closest friends, might have been on the on the board. Uh, I think, but I, I think our board interactions were limited to you know we'd go play racquetball or tennis or video games, yeah. and we talked a little bit about the business, and you know that was that. Uh, so I didn't really have a formal board board meeting. I mean, we didn't have investors, so, and and all the investments were in common shares at the time, not even preference prefer, or anything. So it wasn't very structured. Uh, I became obviously with OL Access, uh, there's a board. Uh, Joel and Jeremy on the board, and Alec and I are on the board. So it's a four person board and works very well. I mean, we we agree on everything, and, and it's really a lot fest. <laughs> Do you find that there is? I guess my question is, you find there's value to the board meeting aside from just keeping your investors on the same page with you which is important you know or, or does it actually give you like better insight and change the way you're looking at the company and you know make a difference yeah so so here's what people should expect from vcs i mean 
do you think do do I think VCs can help you do partnerships? Yeah, for the most part, no. You know, do I think VCs can help you, especially if you want to go international? Yeah, for the most part, no. They don't. You know, they're analysts and they have a lot of smart guys there, but they don't speak the languages. They're not necessarily connected. Uh, no, but VC, are you VCs useful? Absolutely, beyond you know reportings and giving you cash. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So there are two things I look to the VCs for. Um, I'll start with the least important, or the less important, not the least, the less important one, and then the most important one. The less important one is, uh, you know, they're extremely good at helping you hire. I mean, they have a great network of people they know. They also are really good at, you know, checking references. They, they, when you hire someone who's worked in, you know, the internet community, they probably it's probably worked for a company that they've been involved with some way or shape or form. They're very fantastic for reference checking, et cetera. So for senior level appointments or hires, they're really good. More importantly, though, for strategic thinking. So the, you know, few, at the, not the last board meeting, which was yesterday, but the board meeting before that, you know, Joel said, hey, take a step back. Assuming that, you know, it's nice all the reporting you're doing, but assuming that all the execution you do is perfect, you know, what is it that you should do to create as much value as possible for the shareholders? And is it what you're doing? I mean, where is value finally going to come from? And, and, and I think even though it's a simple question, and it's a question that, as a CEO, you know, you're, you're in the mud every day in the trenches, you know, thinking about the product, doing partnerships or M&A, you, you, you rarely take a step back and start thinking, okay, strategically, you know, what is, what is going to be the key driver of value here? What is going to make this, you know, much more valuable than otherwise it could be? And, and so taking a step back and having, you know, and brainstorming with them and how we create value, how is actually been extremely valuable. Uh, and, and so I think having people to, to bounce ideas off is extremely valuable because, the reality is when you're an entrepreneur, it's rather lonely. I mean, m- most of the people you've hired, you've hired for functional reasons. I mean, the, the, the head of marketing, he's there to do marketing. The head of tech is going to be tech. You know, he's not the guy you usually brainstorm about how do we create value. You're going to brainstorm about specific problems and you're going to solve these problems, but it's not necessarily as strategic as it might otherwise be. So either you have, you know, uh, advisors who are friends, you know, from McKinsey or whatever, or smart guys that you trust, or in, in my case, I have the board that I can bounce off ideas off. With Zingy, it ended up being you know all of your money and a little bit of other people's money, but you really had it on the line. Yeah. Now it's other people's money. I guess OPM, as they say on Wall Street. Like, yeah. did that does that change how you think about you know risking capital? Like, you know, does it make you bolder? Does it um, maybe make you spend a couple bucks to save yourself some time? It, it, it definitely makes me bolder, um, but that's where the, the that's also what my VCs wanted. I mean, I when I did this, I was like, guys, you know, I, I've already made a lot of money. Making another whatever five, ten, twenty million, you know, is nice, but you know, it's not worth. I mean, it's not that's not worth getting out of bed for. But it's it, it's <laughs> not that exciting. I mean, what I've not done so far, and I've always been dying to do, is build something huge. You know, can we build a sustainable multi-billion-dollar company? that either we keep private or we take public, but something huge and fun and, and, and really game-changing. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so basically trying to hit a home run. And so with OLX, I'm taking more risks than I would have been, you know, in the past, because in the past, A, we didn't have the cash to take more risks, but also because, you know, I, it's more fun. And, and, and so I have much less of OLX than I had of, uh, of Zingy for two reasons. One, of a partner, so obviously you split the equity with him, and B, we've raised a lot of money, and so you need to give money shares to your investors. Mm-hmm. And so OLX now is only going to make sense if I can get a huge exit, which means I need to hit a home run. But by all the things, by raising that much cash, by doing all the M&A, you know, we've increased your probability of hitting our home run. 
and so I'm willing to trade. I'm willing to take more risks and increase of trade and increase the probability of, of hitting home run, even if it also increases the probability of making nothing ultimately at the mm-hmm. same time, which it does because all of a sudden you know we have all these liquidation preferences before we we can get any money back, etc. And so the probability that I'll make zero is higher, but the probability that I'll make a lot. And, and, and conjointly meaning that we'll build a really big and fun companies has also increased. And so, yeah, it, it allows me to take a lot more risk. And I think, and I think, I mean, and that's what I've wanted to do. And that's what I love about this. Now, um, you know, it's not necessarily true for all entrepreneurs. I mean, some entrepreneurs, now they have their reputation on the line. It's like, you know, they don't necessarily mm-hmm. want, you know, to have, you know, they had a huge success. Do they really want to put their reputation on the line and maybe have a, a failure? The reality is, you know, I, I, I think that success has given me enough confidence that I don't care. Even if this company is a failure, I know that I'll have tried, you know, as hard as I can. And if we fail, I mean, maybe it's because someone, you know, did better than us, or spent more money than us, or we made a big strategic mistake. But at least we'll have tried. I mean, uh, we'll put it on the line, and we'll mm. we'll have gone for broke. And uh, you know, hopefully, we succeed. What do you think right now is the biggest risk to succeeding? You know, you look in the news now, and they're calling someone the Craigslist killer. You couldn't imagine. And Craigslist is still making money, but what an awful thing to have someone uh, to have the press brand you that way. You know, looking at that, you know, is that something you view as a risk? Do you think something else out there is a bigger risk? So I don't think that, you know, people misbehaving online is going to be the issue because the reality is, you know, Craigslist actually, and, and we also try to limit, you know, we try to limit prostitution, we try to limit fraud, we, we spend a lot of time, you know, deleting bad ads, you know, reporting to the police, people are trying to do scams, you know, we save all the IP addresses, I mean, people are trying to do bad things, you know, we try to, A, avoid them because they provide a bad user experience, but actually, we will actually proactively work with police forces to, to, to get them arrested, uh, and, and so... You know, if you look at what Craigslist probably did in this case, I mean, it, it's not really their fault. There were millions of ads. Someone put an ad that led to something bad. They didn't, I mean, they, they didn't, they, and they put everywhere, you know, we are not responsible, you know, don't do anything illegal. It's bad things happen yeah. once in a while. But the reality is, as long as we do a good job at trying to limit that, put in the fringes, you know, even though what happened is horrible, I, I don't think that'll be a real threat to the business. Uh, maybe it'll it'll it, it actually probably wait you know serve as a wake up call for Craig to realize that he needs to do, be even more proactive mm-hmm. than he has been in limiting scam and and things like that. Now, our threats, you know, if I look at the OLX side, I guess they come from multiple sides. So one is you know competitive. We have uh, one company in, in in Europe who's a competitor, which is a publicly traded Norwegian group. I mean, they go in some countries and they're like, you know what? We're going to spend $10 million a year in TV advertising and win the market. And they've done that in uh, France and they blew out the guys who were the OLX of France. They were number mm-hmm. one. They were doing well, et cetera. And that's like, boom, blew them out of the water. They went in, in Italy and they did the same thing. Now, hopefully they're not going to do it in any countries we're in. They just launched in Portugal, which is a, you know one of our, t- our second largest countries, which worries me a bit. But so far they haven't done TV. So mm-hmm. A, competitive. You know, some guys can say, you know what? We have a billion dollars to throw at this business. We really want to go and win. And, you know, we'd rather do it on our own rather than, you know, buy OLX. So uh, there is competitive threat, though I think in the long run, it might be mitigated by the fact that most of the guys are willing to spend that type of money. I mean, they have to charge. I can't imagine they're going to stay free, you know, spending 10 million years in TV advertising. It's just not a sustainable business model. Uh, And maybe with the credit crisis, maybe even less so. Mm. The second risk is is more market risk or, or you know 
for OLX to be really big, we need the advertising business model to be valid uh, for long, in, in the search advertising specifically business model to be valid and the CPMs to converge between the countries we're in and the developing world. So our CPMs in the U.S. you know can be as high as twenty dollars. Our CPM in the Philippines is like fifty cents, and Vietnam is one penny, mm. uh, and you know in Latin America is like between eighty cents and one or two dollars. And you know, for OLX to really succeed, not only, not only do we need to be big in traffic, but we also need CPMs to be, you know, to con start converging with the U.S. Uh, CPMs. And and the the bet we were making was that GDP per capita and GDP growth in the developing world was greater than the developed world, and therefore marketing as a percentage of GDP would increase, and therefore an online marketing as a percentage of marketing would increase, and search marketing as a percentage of online marketing would increase, mm -hmm. and you know, and these all these things combined, we're going to push CPMs up. Of course, the crisis, you know, if anything, CPMs have been falling. Uh, the developing world has been hit especially hard because the local currencies have devalued against the dollar. And so, obviously, the ads we're selling or, or, by, or Google selling on our behalf mm. are sold locally in local currency. But, obviously, our revenues are in dollars. So, you know, the, the Brazilian real is down 40%. I mean, the peso in Mexico is down 40%. Their euro is down 20%. Mm. And the Russian ruble is down like 30%. And all these are the currencies where we're actually making our money. And so all of a sudden our dollar revenues are going down 30% or 40% just because the currencies are devaluating. So there's a fair amount of market risk. I mean, my instinct is the bet we've made is still the right one. I mean, these markets are going to grow and marketing in these countries is going to grow. And ultimately the CPMs are going to converge. The question is how long is it going to take? I mean, is it, a, is it two or three years in which case we're going to be a huge success? Is it you know seven years, in which case will be a success, but it's just going to take a long time, and you know we're ready for that. Or is it twenty years, in which case you know we're probably going to go bankrupt and be poppers? So, um, you know. By that said, I, I started this company knowing it would take a long time. I, I thought this was like a ten-year-plus endeavor. We're three years in, and I think it has at least five, seven years to go before we actually reach an interesting scale. I mean, between the creation of Craigslist in '94 and then being interesting scale in the U.S. is like ten years. I mean, it was 2004. And, and but eventually it accelerates, and we're mm -hmm. hoping to do it in less than ten years. Uh, but you know, it, it's at the very least going to take five or six. And then, in terms of how much your budget to buy the keywords to get the traffic, yeah, what percent of that goes to Google? Almost all of it. I mean, when we when we I mean, not all of our budget, but all of our marketing essentially yeah. goes to Google. We we tried advertising, you know, on Google and MSN, on Yahoo, on on in banners and et cetera. But the reality is, first of all. Internationally, Google is much higher market share than the U.S. In the U.S., Google is about sixty percent market share, and Microsoft and Yahoo and Ask of you know the rest. So in AOL, so you know it's sixty forty. But if you go to most countries in the world, in like Peru, Chile, Portugal, whatever, it's ninety plus percent Google. So mm -hmm. first of all, there's no alternative, and then B, I can describe to you in one minute why Google has won that business and the other guys have lost. If you want to buy keywords globally in Google, you know takes a few minutes, you open your account, boom, you're buying globally. And you have one API to basically optimize your campaigns. On Yahoo, you, know, you sign up in the US, you send back references, you're waiting two weeks for them to call you back, eventually you have your account open, and they have a platform to optimize. So you're all happy. Now you want to advertise in you know, Brazil, and they say, oh, well, another sign up, another bank reference checking, it takes another two to three weeks, and then all of a sudden their platform to buy in Brazil is different from their US platform, it's a different version of Panama. And then you go to Chile, and again, bank references, new account, takes a month, you need to talk to people. And then it's a different platform, it's not even Panama. So they have multiple platforms in different countries, you need multiple openings, bank references, different people to work with, and different ways to optimize the campaigns. I mean, you're going crazy. 
and all mm. that for much less volume than you can get in Google. So you know, eventually you give up and you just do Google. I mean, the, the reality is our marketing, we have one marketing guy. Our entire marketing department is one guy. And he can buy globally in all countries, uh, you know, in Google, or he can, you know, go crazy trying to do three countries in the aisle. It just doesn't make sense. So ultimately, it's Google, and, and also the ROI is just better. Their, their targeting mm -hmm. algorithm is better. And so even when we buy lower CPCs on uh, Yahoo or, or Microsoft, we usually end up with a, a lower C CPA, you know, so ultimately a cost per action on Google uh, mm -hmm. than we do on the other side. So for us, mm -hmm. it's all Google all the time. I mean, all of our revenues is Google. All of our marketing spend is mm -hmm. Google. But now this leads me back to the beginning where you said, you know, one of your rules and, and you were a fool to violate it with Zingy is to rely, you know, or to, to be vulnerable to margin compression. And here it's like before you were in between big media companies and uh, big carriers, but now you got the same guy on both sides, right? But it's not at all what I expected, right? Because the way I saw it is like, okay, any one seller on OLX, you know, a car dealer or even an individual looking for, you know, a nanny or offering his couch for sale or whatever is very small. Any one buyer on OLX, you know, who's mm. just an individual looking for something, again, is, is very small. Um, it never occurred to me that we'd be that dependent on Google. Uh, but the reality is if Google wasn't around, we might not be around either. I mean, so mm. it, it's a curse and it's a blessing as well because... The alternative to Google, and it exists, is I can go in every country and build a sales team that starts selling advertising per category um, locally in that country. And same thing on the, on the media buying side, we can go and work with ad networks and ad agencies in every country and buy advertising there. Could it be done? Absolutely. Uh, but it would be a lot of work. It wouldn't be just one guy. And it's just not worth it at the scale. I mean, by that said, you know, is... Is it a risk that we depend on Google? Yeah, to some extent. But I'd like to believe that the fact that there is an alternative, which actually is going locally and selling the ads and going locally or buying ads, means that they – I mean, yes, they have pricing power and they probably take half the revenues from us. But, you know, I, I, half is worth it. You know, the, the mm. day that we started seeing that it's they're taking too much, you know, w w we'll have to look for alternative. And, and the featured listing things that I described earlier is a step in that direction. I mean – People buying, you know, promotion or premium placement in our site directly from us, you know, is a it, it, it's a complement so far, not a substitute to Google. But you know, should should the you know Google really try to screw us, we probably push it more in the substitute category, and maybe not even show Google ads anymore. But I'd like to believe that their interests are aligned with mine. I mean, if mm. we make a lot of traffic, we make them a lot of money. We make a lot of money, they make a lot of money. And so I'd like to believe that as long as our interests are aligned, they'll be happy, we'll be happy. But yeah, is it something I worry about at night? Absolutely. Is it a risk for my business? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's uh, one of the things mm -hmm. that, that, that worries me. But I, I think every site that is, that is in the direct-to-consumer space that needs to sell advertising, you know, is probably in my, in, my, in my shoes worrying about Google. And I'd love for there to be an alternative. But in the meantime, you know, I'm pretty happy because if they weren't there, we wouldn't be around either. So I guess you're always dependent on somebody, even if yeah, I mean, you don't know it's coming. Exactly. I mean, you, people are like, oh, you're so lucky. You're CEO of an internet company. You don't depend on anyone. Well, yeah, maybe. But, you know, <laughs> I have shareholders. I have a board. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have employees who look up to me. You know, we have customers we need to keep happy. You're, there are always people you depend on, you know, and, and there are always pressures on you. So let's talk now about the future. Like, so unlike our last interview, you're not walking off the job tomorrow. What? 
you know, how far out are you thinking? Are you thinking about what you're going to try next week? Have you, you know, what, what's in store? Well, we, we've, we basically planned out, um, you know, the next until November, but we have a million ideas. I just realized we're brainstorming today and realized there are a few ideas we, we'd forgotten to put in the plan that we need to sneak in somewhere. Um, but, you know, right now, if, if I look at my ideal, you know, wish list of companies I want to buy, there's like 20, you know, on the list. So in, um, in uh, June, I'm going to go and basically fly around the world and meet every one of them. You know, I'm going to go mm. to London and Barcelona and, you know, Lisbon and, you know, the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Poland, and Warsaw, et cetera, and just go meet all of them, you know, and tell them we're there and we'd love to work mm. with them. And, you know, wouldn't it be fantastic to work with a great team of people and conquer the world together and, you know, one plus one equals ten. And hopefully, and, and I truly believe that's the case, by the way, but hopefully enough people believe in that story and pitch that they'll join us and mm. be part of the OLX family. Uh, so that's for the plan is for June, July, and um, you know we have a lot of partnerships, people we can run classifieds for that I'm going to try to meet at the same time. And uh, so, you know, I'll be at Olax for the, I think the long term. I mean, I leave a company uh, or I sell a company when one of two things happens. One is if all of a sudden it becomes boring. If we're to become boring, I mean, maybe f for whatever reason we just don't grow anymore. Maybe the company has reached a plateau and. We just can't get to the next level. I mean, whatever reason, be it competitive, be it market, all of a sudden, you know, it's just a company you want to manage, not for growth, but you want to manage it for maximizing the operational efficiency. At that point, you don't need me. You know, at that point, you fire 95% of the employees, you maximize the cash flows coming from it, and, you know, great. Uh, but hopefully that'll never happen. I mean, I, I'd like to believe we'll keep growing forever, and therefore I'll be here forever. I mean, if I need to be here five, seven, 10, 15 years, you know, as long as we're going in the right direction, Absolutely, I'm, I'm I'm up for it. And um, the second case in which I can sell the company is uh, if someone makes me an unreasonable offer. So if you offer me today what I think the company could be worth in two years, so you're basically giving me a risk-free proposition on what I think is a risky, you know, potential valuation in two years. Of course, you know, you you'll, I'll consider it. And so, um, do I think that's likely to happen in this market environment? Hell no, you know. You'd be crazy mm -hmm. to offer me the type of money I'd want. You know, I think this company could be worth in a few years. But you know, someone you know <laughs> wants to spend a couple hundred million dollars. Yeah, why not? But do you I never know who's listening to this podcast? Yeah, un unlikely. <laughs> and, and frankly, I love what I do. I mean, oh, look at this differently. OLX, you know, it's I by formation, meaning at both at heart and uh, by my degree at Princeton is is in economics. I mean, I I love marketplaces. I love making markets more efficient. And basically, I'm going into countries where the only alternative is spending 100 plus dollars, because even in poor countries, it's 100 plus dollars, to to get an ad, to find an apartment or uh, a job, or you know, or, or a car, and that was it. And all of a sudden, I'm creating a marketplace that's free, where you basically can do anything. You can find anything, you can offer anything, be it a service, be it a good, etc. So I'm making markets more efficient, more liquid, easier, and for free. I mean, as an economist, it's like the dream job. I mean, I'm making the world a better place, and I'm bringing a little bit of you know utility and and, and efficiency in, in, in a lot of people's lives. I mean, every month, you know, indirectly, our OLX employees and myself are touching the lives in a small way, but in a small positive way, I hope, of 70 million different people. And I think this is a fantastic thing. And so, do I think I could do this for the rest of my life? Absolutely. You know, and ideally, one day we'll be touching the lives of hundreds of millions, if not a billion people. And then, you know, I feel we're doing something fantastic. So last question. Uh, world today is a very different place than it was in uh, 2005 when you 
we're planning this out. So, you know, what's your advice to people out there now trying to kind of scheme up their business idea, you know, budding entrepreneurs who want to figure out what to do, kind of given, you know, the economic crisis and everything that's going on. What's your advice to people who are, you know, out on the street the way you were when you were getting started? I would argue today's probably the best time to start a new company. I mean, because in, in the in good days, when you have an idea, you know, it's going to be replicated by 50 other people. There's so much cash available that you're all competing away, basically, the profits. And so very few people are going to be able to, are going to start a company today. And so you're going to have much less competitive, competitive pressures. You're going to have much more time, basically, to grow it. Uh, you just need to be careful with cash because you're likely not to be able to raise any cash. And so you're going to have to build it the slow way. I mean, keep the burn as low as possible. You know, if, if money becomes available, even a couple hundred K or 50 K, take it and just take your time. Keep the cat burn low and, you know, keep at it. And, and when the market recovers in two, three, four, five years, and we'll see how long, uh, you'll be in a perfect position because you, you'll have actually laid the groundworks for what will lead to something extremely successful. So... You know, my recommendation is if you have an idea and this is the best time to do it. So just do it. Well, for Brees, thanks for coming on again. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That's all for my show with Fabrice. If you want to interact, ask some more questions, be sure to go to VentureVoice.com where you can leave comments. Usually the guests will check those comments and respond to you. I'd like to thank... FreshBooks for sponsoring this show. It's a great online invoicing service that I use to invoice my sponsors quickly and easily. I'd also like to let everybody know uh, we're doing a couple new things. One is uh, this is the second time we did this where I did a quick kind of flip video shoot with Fabrice getting a tour of his office so you can kind of add a little uh, visual into what you've imagined listening to this podcast. It's kind of fun because there's a very modest office for such a large company here in New York since most of the people are remote. I've also launched a site with another company I started called Sawhorse Media where we launched a site Venture Maven, Venture, M-A-V-E-N, dot com where you can easily follow what venture capitalists and angel investors are saying on Twitter. So rather than having to sign up for Twitter and kind of dig around to find who's saying interesting stuff in the venture community, this site brings it all straight to you. So be sure to check that out. I'd also like to thank Eddie Leviton, my associate producer. Until next time, I'm Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.